Well, now we can start. The other yeah. the door is locked. I figured I'd take the loose. Well, I've been a member of this class since 2014. I'm, it seems I teach under every administration, so I, I make my annual appearance. This is it. There's a list that we pass around. Right. <laughs> and even knowing the history of y'all being kind of late starters, I think at 10 after, it was Amy, me, and Bo, and I said, well, we got the critical core. <laughs> we got somebody to introduce me, and I can give a lesson, and Amy can hear the lesson. So I'm glad that we've got more folks that have joined in. But today, and I'm glad we got a, enough people here, it's, it's kind of an audience participation, and I know you guys are talkers, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. But the name of this lesson is called A Tale of Two Gardens. And what we're going to do is look at the first Adam in the Garden of Eden and compare him to the last Adam, Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Back when I was at Duke, uh, Richard Hayes was my dean, and Hayes got famous for his dissertation, that was where he first uh, gained notoriety, where he looked at the New Testament Greek and said, really a better interpretation is the faith of Christ, not the faith in Christ. And I heard that the first time, and I'm thinking, man, this is kind of shocking, because all my life, like everyone here, I grew up hearing the faith in Christ. But as I studied what he meant and did a paper on it, it came to make sense. When he says the faith of Christ, it's not to diminish or downplay Christ's divinity, his dignity. Instead, it is to give purpose to the incarnation, that we are to look at Christ as an exemplar of how to live into the call to which we're called. And I figured if you're going to do a comparison, if you're going to look at Christ as an exemplar, a great way of doing it is to contrast Christ. So we're going to have look at these two gardens. Obviously, with the first Adam, the Garden of Eden is where everything plays out. So the part about the first Adam is going to be totally contained in Genesis 2 and 3. With Gethsemane, not so much. There is instead a course that is launched upon, born out of Christ's obedience. And that's going to manifest and have repercussions even on to Revelation. But we're going to look at seven different facets and what I'm going to do is say, here's the key word for this facet. Here's what the first Adam did. Here's what the last Adam did. And then you guys can talk and we can discuss how that impacts you, whether it be in your head or in your heart. What does that mean? So as we get started here, let me first, I'm going to lay a scriptural basis that kind of illustrates where I get first and last Adam. And then I'm going to talk about sort of our venues for comparison, a brief description of what's entailed with these two gardens. And then finally, I'll give you a, a compare uh, example so we know how this thing is going to work. For those who want to follow along, this is in Romans 5. And here Paul is, and Paul's convoluted. It's sort of a rite of passage in seminary to do a paper on not only Paul, but Romans especially, because it's very difficult. So I'm going to paraphrase. And I'll point out what he's saying. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, 
And so death spread to all because all have sinned. So here's this one guy, this one man, who takes certain actions. And out of that action, we have sin come into our existence, and with the sin, death. Who's that man? Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So right here, Paul is saying, here's one type, and we've got another type. So that is a clue if you're exegeting this passage that says what Paul's talking about is not humanity and fully man, fully God. He's talking about an exemplar, because otherwise, how could Adam be a type of the one who was to come, which is Christ? Then we get to Christ. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So he's drawing this distinct comparison between the two of them. And then he finishes there and says, Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now that's Paul in Romans where he gets kind of wordy. In earlier writing, 1 Corinthians says it much more succinctly. The first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he gets very much to the point. Okay, so if we, if we have built a scriptural argument that says we're going to look at first Adam and last Adam, where do we look? Well, as I said before, we're looking at gardens. And think about it, what is the Garden of Eden called? What you, paradise, right? The Garden of Eden is referred to commonly as paradise. Yet what came out of paradise? Sin and death and evil, exactly. On the other hand, we've got the Garden of Gethsemane, and theologians have a special name for this. They call it the Garden of Agony for obvious reasons. Yet, what came out of this? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. I got my, my two stars right over here. <laughs> I'm imagine most of the answers are going to come. Yeah. Life. It's reconciliation, life, hope, everything good. So we have paradise, and because of disobedience, everything unravels. And despite this being paradise, it's sin and death. And yet we have agony that was endured for our sake, and that's what yields everything in which we place our hope. All right, so I told you I was going to give you an example. This is actually number six of the seven facets. And the word for this facet is punishment. And I'm going to go back to Genesis 3. And this is in the aftermath where... Um, where Adam and Eve had sinned and God's laying out the punishment for it. And if we read it, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat of it in all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Well, you know, if you just read that, if you read this text on your own, and you didn't have it in context, maybe you just blow right past it, because that's just one little sentence in this entire narrative of the second creation. 
And even if you delve into the material and say, you know, I think what's going on here is creation itself is rebelling. And that's where the thorns and thistles come up. Um, but it really fully, uh, the point is really fully made when you see where those thorns and thistles brought by first Adam, where do they end up with the last Adam? And I'm in Matthew 27. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. So what we see is the first Adam commits sin, and it causes creation to erupt and revolt, and part of that is thorns and thistles. And yet we look down through, echoing through history, the last Adam, those thorns and thistles, end up being part of the humiliation visited upon Christ. And that helps us get a finer uh, meaning, a finer understanding of Christ as exemplar. So, let's start. And the first facet I have is... Can I ask a stupid question? Christ says exemplar. Example, I'm sorry. That's a lawyer of me coming out. (laughs) Uh, I get criticized on that sort of stuff all the time. All right, our first facet is obedience. Uh, And this is a foundation that should undergird everything that we're going to discuss this morning. This is the it. And we're going to return to this at the end of the lesson. And I'm beginning Genesis um, Genesis 2. Okay. The Lord the God took a man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And so, you know, all you parents out there know, what's if you want your kid to do something, what do you, what do you tell them? Don't do that. You can do anything. I got to run an errand. I'm going to leave you in the playroom, and you can do anything, but don't touch this button. And you know, before you pulled out of the driveway. So we have have Adam in here in three one five, and uh, woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die." But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we, we have that is when the first Adam is confronted with, God says, do this. One little simple thing, and right away that's torn asunder. So the last Adam, we look at Matthew 26. Okay, 38. This is when he's in Gethsemane. Jesus uh, went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he said to him, I am deeply grieved even to death, remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not what I want, but what you want. So two gardens, two temptations, totally different reaction. 
and that should speak something to us about how we might view Christ as an exemplar for obedience. So my question open to you guys is how does it, hearing these two passages in comparison, what does that tell you about what obedience means to the Christian? What obedience following the example of Christ might look like? Humility. Humility? Yeah. I mean, because the, the serpent appeals to the pride of Adam and Eve. If you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. You'll have his knowledge. Isn't that great? Yeah, and we're, this church is a, a smart, accomplished uh, congregation, and people here have plenty of bringing power, and they have plenty of uh, wherewithal, and that's a weakness, potentially, because you can say, you can kind of rationalize and talk to your, oh, I can get around this. This is not a real big sin. Kim Boa tells the story about Stone Mountain. And, you know, if you, for those who have been up there, they've got a fence line. And you're walking there, and you see the, the granite have a slight curvature, but you're going, this fence really seems very close in. I wonder why they did it. Why they did it was that you start walking out there, and you're not noticing the curvature of that granite mountaintop. And before you know it, by the point you realize you're in trouble, you're really in trouble. And Ken said, that's like sin. You get in there and you don't have the humility and you say, I'm going to charge in because I can handle this. And before, by the time you realize you're in trouble, you're really in trouble. So one great thing for Christians seeing this as an exemplar is for us to be humble. Not my will, but yours be done. All right, number two, pride. Uh, and this is, again, this, once we succumb to temptation, then it all falls apart to be, uh, get very bad very quickly. And this is Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so they're, they're tempted again, as you said, and they're, they're not masked in humility, but they're saying, God, like that. You know, you got the opportunity. God's going to take care of you. Gives you everything in the garden that you could ever need. But what's the first thing you want to do? They want to be like God. And Robbie Zacharias says that eating of the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil is being able to name good and evil. And he points out that when you know God lets Adam name all the animals, he's giving him dominion over all the animals. But Adam and Eve don't want just that. They want to also be able to name good and evil. And without getting into current politics and such, just think about the media and the things that the media says are good that we would <coughs> say, no, that's just evil. And the things that are evil are lauded as being good. So what, seeing this example, um, where first Adam seeks to become like God, and we know the last Adam becomes a man. In fact, what do we, what do we think of in terms of pride? What place does pride have in the Christian walk? How do we handle it? It has none. It's about submission. Yeah. I think that's, it, sounds, it sounds very strident to say it has no place, but it really doesn't have any place 
because we can see where pride is deeply embedded in our, in our makeup, and we all want to run our own show, but it gets us into bad spots. Any well, others? Eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not only do they want to be like God, in so doing, they actually show that they actually want to be away from God. We don't need him. We can do this ourselves. We're here. Who's he? That's a great point because I go. I talk a lot about Ken Bowes, and I've been there since 1992, so it's just part of my fabric. But one of the most helpful things that Bowes said to me was that you will always ultimately regret an act of disobedience, but you will never regret an act of obedience. And it sure doesn't sound that way when you're doing, you're faced with this choice, oh, here's the right way, but that's kind of difficult. But ultimately, if you don't do that right way, it comes back to haunt you. Any other thoughts on pride? Well, it's, it's from where all the other, it's, it's the number one of the seven. Six. The source. It's the source of the other six. Satan falling from heaven, out of pride. And then with that, I think the Satan wanting Adam and Eve to be with him and showing how, how taking the fruit was really just taking him in the opposite direction. Right. So, so I think he wanted some company and his distance from God. Yeah, and, and look at, and, and this is, if you look at the first Adam who wanted to become God, that desire led to separation. And the last Adam actually became man and that led to unity the transfiguration that led to unity with God and you notice when it occurred I mean it, it, it occurred when they were not with God they were with the serpent and so they were alone so you know I know Ken, I've, I've been to Ken's group once or twice but the larger point I think there's scholarship but there's a greater point is also accountability and it doesn't just have to be a formal group that meets at 6.30 on a Friday morning. It can be this group. It can be fellow parishioners in Christ. I mean, I think it's very, very important that we, that we have that because, because God put that, that sin in Adam and Eve, but it was not, did not emerge until God was away and the servant right. was there. And you bring up a good point as the baptized you have not only the right but the duty to engage in the three offices of Christ, priest, prophet, and king. As priests, we all pray for one another. As prophets, we proclaim the word. As kings, we are agents of reconciliation. But the first one hits to your point. Praying for one another keeps that accountability, keeps that fellowship that guards us against succumbing to pride. All right. Facet number three, consequences. And this is where not only is this a consequence of sin, but a consequence in a physical sense. And the first Adam uh, incurred death from a tree. The last Adam suffered death on a tree. And we know about, about how Eve and the apple and all that, so that's the death from a tree. It's the disobedience. And it just happened to have this physical manifestation of the apple from the tree. But the death on a tree, I want to read something to you from Deuteronomy that maybe will shed a little bit more, a little bit brighter light on the shame within that culture and the humility that Christ was enduring. It was not just physical, but it was a humiliation 
by being uh, nailed to a tree. And this is Deuteronomy 21. When someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed and you hang him on a tree, his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for possession. So you see a consequence of the first Adam's sin is suffered by the last Adam, and it is a physical cons, uh, consequence that is painful, that is humiliating, that is cursed within this culture. So the question to you is, what do you think about the consequences from sin? <laughs> sin is bad. Sin is bad. What do you do? You pick up the aspect that that we're all in this together, and I think it's in our culture we're independent. We think only of our own actions, and we want to chart our own course. But yet, Christianity within the Scripture is profoundly communal. And our fellowship is profoundly communal. We're tied. So the sin of a person doesn't just reside within them. It can have consequences, and we're going to see the physical or the spiritual consequences next. But it can also have physical consequences when we slip, when we don't remain in the fellowship, when we don't remain in prayer with God, that consequence spreads out much beyond ourselves and affects other people around us. Because here we're seeing, you know, Adam, the first Adam is the one that committed the sin, but the consequence is borne by the last Adam. And that's meant to tell us something. So what do we think about the communal aspect of the consequences of sin? Besides, obviously, it's not good. Well, it affects more than yourself. I mean, it's, you know, I guess you're more, it affects others. Like when we sin, too, it's a turnoff, right, for people that would, get turned off by that hypocrisy. Right, well, uh, I, I know right. several of you guys were in the CLC, and you remember we're in the course of those 18 months together. Sometimes we'd have members uh, you know, that had problems, and it, it really infiltrated our group, and it was a burden that the group had to bear. So that's in a, CLC is a very close-knit, covenantal community, and so we, we got into one another's business in a way that you normally wouldn't do out there, but, uh, you know, it's something that when somebody slips, it permeates and kind of soils every, the group until it's dealt with. All right, the next facet, shame. This is a shame. This is something a little bit more than guilt. This is a shame of separation, as you were talking about, when you are not clad in humility and you enter forth in, uh, into pride. The result is going to be your shame. And this, of course, is the first Adam hid himself from God, the last Adam asked to show himself to God. And this is Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
So you see here that despite this being paradise and despite having that close relationship, because of the actions here, now suddenly they're ashamed. Ashamed to the point where they don't want to go before God. May this be, you know, if I ask you, what do you think of shame? When you do something, and you, if I do something bad, which is often, I go and pray about it. And, and I, one of the things I've got to overcome is this sense of shame that I know what I'm supposed to do. And, I'm, you know, frankly, teaching Sunday school is a good way of reining me in because I'm thinking I'd better not do this because it'll come to my mind when I'm in front of a Sunday school class, so that helps me. But there's still, when you, when you do sin, do you feel shame? Do you feel a separation from God that makes maybe makes it a problem to pray? Makes it a problem to pray. Something that you have to overcome because you haven't you haven't been faithful and obedient to God. Yeah, I mean, you know, because Bill Bill's talked about this. Uh, sin has its consequences, and and there's and there. And certainly fear is associated with sin. Um, Tim Keller makes the point, however, that there's no sin that God won't forgive. Right, but it's tough but for it's us tough. to buy into it because right. it's counter. I mean, I'm telling this subject a lot, and there's, believe you me, there is something with each and every one of us that you would say, this is a line. Cross this line, and I am not going to forgive you because that's a human nature. We're, just, we're creatures of justice, not creatures of mercy. And so even though God is of mercy, we're trying to comprehend that from a justice prism. And it's very tough for us to accept. We can't believe, I wrote them, we had our annual reviews for the district here uh, about a month ago, and I wrote on this thing and I said, I'm so glad that I'm not God because I would never be as generous with the forgiveness. And it's the real difficult for me is to try to grasp the depth uh, and width of that and to accept it. So we see a separation that even though God's willing, sometimes we, God, were ashamed. I was naked and I was afraid. So then, in, in, uh, I don't want to say necessarily makes it harder for me to pray but I, I think it, it it hinders your prayers right in other words God God wants you to rec reconcile yourself to others and to him prior to uh, kind of bringing forth your issues and prayers right and requests I think God wants to go wants you to go to God initially and and I understand what you're saying but sometimes I start on this path and I begin my prayer and I'm trying to make legal argument. <laughs> you know, I'm in the courtroom trying to make argument to God, and I was, no, 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 God, there's nothing I'm going to hide, so I just cut down my barriers and become transparent to the extent I can. Well, I'm just confused. Are we saying the same thing then, or no? I think you go to God initially, and in that process, in your prayers, that's where you get the reconciliation. Right, that's what I was trying to okay, say. Okay, I'm yeah, not yeah, yeah. In other words, because it's some boys in Peter somewhere, I think. It's one of the CLC verses, actually, about uh, the deal with the husband and wife. And it says, need to do this, 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 or, or that'll hinder your prayers, meaning that God's not going to answer all your other 
request. Yeah, they just bring us to come to walk together unless they're in agreement. Yeah, contrite. You have to have a contrite heart. Right. 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 Clean yourself and then come to church. Come to church and get clean. That's one. Thank you for saying it uh, much better than I did. All right, our next one is uh, speaking of bride and, and such. And I couldn't come up with a word. I came up with responsibility, care, cherishing, adoration, sustaining, nurturing. And this is where the first Adam, of course, blamed his bride. When they got caught, he turned out, she did it. The last Adam takes a bride, and this is in 312. Uh, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. So here he is, you know, he's gotten caught with his hand in the, in the cookie jar, and, and uh, he turns on what should be the most precious thing in his life. I did a friend of mine got married a few months ago and I did the toast and I had a little homily. It said a man found the treasure hidden in a field and in his joy when he found it, he hid it again and sold all he had to buy the field. Then I turned around to the bride and the point I'm trying to make is how a spouse should view the other spouse. I said, Caleb, Andrew searched for you, his treasure of infinite value. And when he found you, he hid you away in his heart. So that's what I'm talking about. What Adam, it's, it's easy to gloss right over that. It's so quick. This woman that you gave, he knows he's also taking a shot at God. Not only the woman, but the woman that you gave me. The person that he should hold most precious in life is who he's rolling it over on. And we compare that to the last Adam, and this is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what do we think in terms of cherishing, adoring the gifts that God has given? We see the first Adam. You know, basically, you're on your own. The last Adam takes his bride. So, what do we what do we think about adoration of the gifts we've been given? First, they have to be recognized. So, good point. Adam had to recognize that he was given that gift, and he didn't. He turned on it. Whereas the latter did in its glory. Yeah, a gift turns into entitlement. And a lot of people just take it as a given. We've been, oh yeah, this, this is mine. And we forget that it's a gift. Like, like, is a gift. And it's a whole different paradigm when you wake up each day and say, yeah, what am I going to do with this gift? All right, any thoughts? Moving on. Facet number six, punishment. So ultimately, there's a cost that's going to be paid for the sins. And we've already talked about the, how the first Adam earned thorns for his actions. He's disobedient, and in response to the disobedience, creation itself revolts and 
brings forth thorns and thistles. And then the last Adam received thorns for mere accusations. So you have somebody that's truly guilty that causes a bad thing to come into the earth. And then you have the last Adam who's totally innocent and is punished, humiliated by this evil that was brought in by this transgression. So what thoughts do we have about the consequence of sin, about punishment? Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> I just want to go back a little bit towards shame, and I'm going to tie punishment in also. So one of the things I've found over the years is that so many people have walked away from their relationship with God because of shame. Um, they're so ashamed of what they have done that they have walked away from God, and they feel like they can't go back because guilt and shame become a burden on them. But my, my theology regarding grace is that grace is greater than any sin. You know the song we sing in our church, Grace is greater than all our sins? Grace is greater than any sin that we could ever commit and any punishment that we would ever deserve. That's where mercy comes in. And so from time to time when I hear people will say, you don't understand, Pastor, you know, I can't be forgiven for this. A part of that is shame and guilt being a burden. And so... We always have to realize that no matter what we have done, no matter how far we have gone, God's grace is even beyond that and goes further. Right. And, and we have to accept that. I know we live in a world where it's always about merit, what we do, punishment, shame, but that's not the kingdom of God. And, and I don't know how to say I can't overemphasize that. I'm glad you did bring that emphasis. Alan was making that point. It's worth making because that is a... <clears throat> In Boaz men's group, we have all these men where they're, they're a type A and driven folks. And a lot of times they're driven because they were trying to prove themselves to their dad. And at some point in the life, the father goes, ah, I did this to my son. And unfortunately, a response can be, and it's expressed often in, in um, you know, this sour attitude towards God and life, and, and I was put upon, but really, when you unpeel all that, it's them not being able to fully comprehend grace, and I think that is uh, one of the great responsibilities of the clergy is to tell the flock, don't put a limit on this. This is something beyond what you can understand, accept it. One of the ways I also try to point out to people about this matter of grace, in Isaiah it tells you that our righteousness, so even the best works we do, even when we have done good, before God it's still nothing. So we have to remember even when we're doing good, that is not enough for God. It's just simply grace, nothing we can earn. Well said. All right, our seventh facet, this is provision is what I call this. And as punishment was ultimately the cost of sin, then I'm saying provision is ultimately the cure for sin. And we have in Genesis, and I want you to think deeply about what I'm about to tell you that's going on here, Genesis 3.21. This is when Adam and Eve were being exiled from the garden. Uh, 
And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. What's that? What's going on there? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Absolutely. This is the first sacrifice in history where the first Adam committed sin and God made provision for them, clothed them. But that clothing came at the cost of the life of a creature. And it's easy for us to gloss over that because it's just that one little sentence, but it has meaning. And then we go to Matthew 27 and 28, the Calvary and Golgotha. What's that? Say it, said The last sacrifice. The new covenant. The new covenant. So, uh, for the first Adam, clothes were given by God. For the last Adam, clothes were taken by man. When Remember when they're uh, as part of the process, they strip him of all his garments. And so that's, you know, that's the covering. There was a covering with the first Adam. In the first sacrifice, clothes, clothes were made. And there's a covering, a provision with the last Adam by enduring these acts, this pain, this humiliation, this taking on of sin for he who know, knew no sin, that's also provision for us. So what do you think about that? I don't remember ever hearing that before. So when, when, he, when he kicked him out of the garden, he did the give him clothes, skin skin? Yeah. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. Providing provision. I think it's great. <laughs> you are you're a, a wonderful theologian. This is good. Well sometimes it's that simple. Michael, you know that feeling you get when you break something? I mean, anything, like a, a relationship or a car or, or if that screen fell off the, and you just, you're just like, no, it'll never be right. And, and you just, you know, and, and there's this lament that, um, but what if the breaking was, was a, a required part of the process? What if that... And, and not, not to excuse the sin or the breaking or the thing, but what if that makes us better on the other side of it? Um, I've got this note from an Andy Stanley uh, sermon, and he says, Christians believe that the current world is the best possible path, is the best path to the best possible world. This is a necessary path to the best possible world. The best possible world is a world in which men and women are free to sin, but freely choose not to. The best possible world is one with knowledge of good and evil. It, it's one with experience of the consequence of good and evil. And then it's one where we can freely choose to love, worship, serve, and to say no to evil. That it's a, a world where there is knowledge of good and evil, but where mankind has the freedom to choose, but chooses freely not to engage in self-destructive behavior. It's a necessary cost of love. I was dealing with theodicy. Uh, why does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow pain and suffering? I say God is love. Love requires choice. Choice allows evil. So that's what I mean when I say it is a necessary cost for us to have true love. 
So we're at our time here, and I'll just close by, okay, we've looked at these seven facets of God as exemplar for how we are to live our lives. And we look at these two gardens in which these decisions on first Adam and last Adam were played out. We see the garden of paradise that yielded sin and death. We see the garden of agony that yields the hope that we live with. And we see Christianity as a costly call, the costly call of Christianity. And we think, how in the world can we ever endure that? And it's at that point that we listen to the wisdom, the exemplar, the example of the last Adam that shows us the way, the wisdom, the logos, the truth, that obedience, even though it appears costly, is the way to freedom and to salvation and to hope and to everything we aspire for. And conversely, we would look and say, if we act in our own operation, it may seem easy. It may seem that we can get away with it, but ultimately, it puts us onto the path of death and decay. So I appreciate y'all's time. And um, Michael, will you close? Sure. Please? Holy Father, we are so thankful this beautiful day to engage in beautiful relationship, relationship within this fellowship group, relationship of us to your word, but mostly relationship with you. We ask that you impart your wisdom upon us, strengthen us so that we may remain obedient to you and stay on to the path that leads to hope and love and fellowship with our Heavenly Father. In Christ we pray, amen. amen. amen.